0: Hello and welcome to Place Labs Podcast with me, Julien Klein and Rosanna Vitiello. Our aim at the Place Labs is to explore place from a variety of angles, to facilitate cross-pollination with the industry, and to think about the challenges facing future cities and rural areas alike. The theme for this quarter is Disaster Question Mark. Punctuation will hopefully make sense at the end of this podcast. We entered the new decade accompanied by wildfires of an unprecedented scope in Australia, by the rapid spread of coronavirus, by apparently more frequent and severe floods in Britain. Forced migration occurs on a large scale, and irreversible climate change looms. So at Place Labs, we pause to reflect and ready ourselves: Is this a moment of disaster? And what does this mean for us now, for our attitudes towards the world and for the future of our places? Here to discuss this with us today are Noel Mocker, geographer studying anthropogenic environmental change, founder of the Park Society and trustee at Participatory City. Paddy Lohman, a climate activist involved in Extinction Rebellion and a former strategy director at Wolf Olin's, focusing on the role that business can play in the climate and ecological crisis. But first we'll go to Gemma Jones, cultural strategist and co-founder of the School of Critical Design interested in the interplay of story and place and how narrative can help us shape our future. So Gemma, you're a semiotician and you've looked at how different cultures have represented disaster throughout history so is this a moment of disaster that we're living and is disaster even the right word for the narratives that we use?
1: Yeah I think it is the right word. Um, I think what's interesting to me as a semiotician is that the associations or the meanings that we attribute to that word might need to change. And I think that's kind of the moment that we're exploring at the moment as a culture. So I think, yes, disaster is the right word, but disaster-ness is a lot slower than maybe we imagine. I think we think of disaster as being event-based, as kind of sudden or shocking scenarios or events. But actually, we're kind of living in a very long, drawn-out era of disaster, both from an ecological point of view, but also from a cultural point of view. Um, and if we think about, say, the indigenous people of the Americas, centuries ago when the Europeans arrived, that was a disaster. You know, 95% or so of them died. So I think it's about re, um, reimagining or exploring what disaster really means and thinking about our role in creating it as well as being potential victims of it. Mm-hmm.
0: But we might think of, of disaster as a, as a sort of post facto word, as something that describes something that has already happened mm. and the consequences of that event, say a plague or you know, you mentioned Europeans arriving somewhere, um, do we have to imagine now, in order to act, do we have to imagine disaster and its consequences before it even happens?
1: Yeah, I think we do. I mean, I sort of think of ourselves and what we've made as being kind of disastrous. You know, like the system is the disaster, it's not that disasters are a side effect of the system. Um, And I don't mean that to sound like we're all to blame or that we should kind of feel feel, um, ashamed or scared. I think we need to kind of own it um, and think about how we can adapt to it.
0: How can we adapt to it?
1: That is a very good question. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that's something that um, needs to be kind of slow, considered, it needs to be evolving, you know, the disaster event or the disaster era that we're living through is is a slow one, as as I've mentioned. So I think our responses need to kind of follow that, Mm. that tag. And um, I don't think it helps us to catastrophize too much. I think a lot of people are paralysed by a kind of fight or flight response, which leaves them sort of numb and stuck. So how can we find narratives where we say, okay, this is what we've created, this is what we're living through, so what are the sort of adaptive models that we can create? And I think those will be, you know, culturally contextualised as well, so they're going to look different for different communities and different populations
0: but do we also not need to um, do we need to feel the consequences of disaster as 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 a catalyst for action as something that actually pushes us out of the of the status quo and of our complacency as well so for example if you think of, of coronavirus yeah. what does it take for someone to self isolate you know do you have to experience it yourself or is it enough to be to be told about it
1: yeah i think we do need to experience those things i think that data and Studies and research and kind of facts. We've known about this stuff for a really long time and it kind of hasn't worked. And I think that's because the story isn't as catchy as other stories around identity or around growth or productivity, which are clearly kind of the actual disastrous things. So I think that we need to get into the embodied or experience of what disaster might mean, what we might really lose. And some of that stuff might operate at a kind of sensory or emotional level. Um, rather than just the kind of cold hard data, which we, we need and we need to observe and honour it, but we need to find the emotional stories and the points of kind of human connection that really resonate with people.
0: We'll maybe come back to that in our discussion later as well. But um, now, Noel, you're, you're coming from the point of view that the Western approach to space and place perpetuates risks rather than prevent them and actually even creates unforeseen disaster. Um, could you expand on that a bit?
2: Sure, so I think from about the 17th century um, natural disasters, uh, they threatened humanity. There was a change in thoughts from kind of disasters such as the volcanic eruption wasn't so much an act of God but it was a natural hazard that we could calculate and mitigate against. And I think the technologies that arose, and also the ways of thinking that arose during that period, during the Industrial Revolution for example, the rise of rationalism and empiricism, began to organize society around these risks in a way in which to control them. But actually what happened is, they made these risks seem calculable when in fact they were still as incalculable as ever. But also, these technologies in themselves produce new risks which we hadn't seen before. Um, I suppose an example of that would be kind of the energy bottleneck. So, the use of nuclear power, for example. You know, there are issues that we know about radioactivity, um, I mean, nuclear waste, what to do with it. But there are also a whole host of unknown unknowns which I personally find extremely scary. Um, These are disasters that might be on the horizon might be happening now that we have no idea about um, so that's what i mean by society's approach to disaster kind of perpetuating old disasters because actually they're still very existent and as Jeremy you mentioned we now kind of live in a in a society of kind of this perpetual slow disaster but we also live in a period of just perpetual preparedness because we we don't know when these disasters are going to strike they might be happening now they might have already happened um, it's it's this invisible risk which Ulrich Beck, which you may be familiar with, speaks about. It's you know society is a risk.
0: But you've also done some work on sort of anthropocene and and mm. deep time thinking. So is there something that we can learn from looking at, at the <coughs> past in that respect? And is there is there a pattern that emerges around disaster that can maybe indicate some of these mm. things? Yeah, I
2: think the way we've thought about our relationship to to space and place is is fundamentally wrong. <laughs> That's likely quite strong. But um, I think it's, it's been very linear over the course of not human history as a whole, um, but especially since sort of the industrial revolution with thoughts about you know nature and humanity, when we all know it's, it's all one. Um, but also this idea that we can control nature, that it's this bilateral relationship between us and everything that isn't us, the non-human. Um, I think a really, Kind of productive approach would be actually to consider kind of our relationship with non-human not as a bilateral one in which we can tame and control the non-human but actually think about space uh, and place as kind of nodal um each part of the node be it's kind of an inanimate objects a non-human being a human being and I, I think if we if we thought about place in those terms giving things uh, almost equal agency, I suppose. Um, because not everything does have equal agency, but appreciating the fact that different things have varying amounts of agency, um, we can produce kind of much more collaborative spaces. And I think that would be a step towards producing a much more sustainable future, and also approaching disaster in a much more sustainable
0: way. I think we'll come back with to agency and and roles um, with Paddy. Paddy, you're involved in in Extinction Rebellion, so most of us will be able to guess your take on our current situation. Um, And those of our listeners who'd like to know more can find all the information on Extinction Rebellion's website. But you're also a Strategy Director, and and I'm interested to know, um, can we think about this more as a time of crisis in the medical sense, that, that means the phase of make or break? And if so, then what are our opportunities to find the cure? yeah I think it's,
3: a, it's a great way of framing it and um, and the basic reality is we don't need to find a cure, we have the cures, the cures are there we know what they look like, we don't have to do them, we just need to go and do them um, so uh, I think quite a good way of thinking about this is uh, people have to live with cancer, right? often you can't always cure cancer um, and they do so with an increasingly low quality of life and um, this situation we're in is not about living with cancer. This situation can be about and should be about curing that cancer and doing so in a way that makes life for everybody on the other side of that better. So at the moment, uh, the big disease here that we're dealing with fundamentally is our economy and the way that that works. All of the crises that we're dealing with are essentially symptoms of a diseased economy. Mm-hmm. And we know how to fix that, we know how to address that, we know what it needs to look like. A great example of the thinking that goes in that direction is Donut Economics by Kate Rayworth and the new book, Economics of Arrival, which has sort of followed on from that. Um, so uh, we know how to deal with those symptoms, we know how to cure that disease in particular. And If we think of the doctor, the doctor currently knows what's wrong. The doctor has the cures, but the doctor is not administering them. So how, do, so how do we administer them and who administer them? Who is the doctor? It's all of us basically. So I mean the, the economy is, uh, is something we can design and we don't tend to think of it like that. We have this old way of thinking about, about it being laws and science and it isn't. It was thought of in that way because that's what the people who are the original economists wanted to think of it as because they were sort of envious of people like Newton at the time, the scientists who had laws and so on. Uh, the economy is not, it's a much more organic It's a much more, uh, I guess, unpredictable thing. It's a much more human thing. It can therefore be designed. And if we really embrace that thought and start to design something different that isn't divisive and degenerative, but is instead regenerative and distributive, then we start to get to a better place. So that takes all of us. One way I tend to think about this is that uh, Extinction Rebellion is like a fire alarm. It's been ringing to draw our attention to the fact that there's a fire. Um, Fire alarms are quite annoying, they're quite and you know, you have to go outside and put a scarf on all actually. And they're annoying until you realise there is a fire, and then you're quite grateful for the alarm. Um, So what needs to happen now is we need the fire brigade, Uh, and that's basically everybody else. Everything we do, we in some way need to to change, because the key point here as well is that this this is the setting for everything. Climate change has been a story that some people have told, many people have ignored. Uh, a lot of us uh, continue to ignore um, but the reality is it's not a story, it's not an issue it's a, the setting within which all stories take place and so if we, if we really lean into that then it makes us realise that everything we do is, is affected by this and therefore everything we do is affecting it and um, so we can get out of this situation if we recognise that new economic ways of doing things can provide us with opportunities for better and not just for better uh, you know, businesses um, but ways that are better from where we are now. So better ways of living for everybody. So I think that that's sort of the overarching point. We know what to do here. Um, it's going to take kind of everybody to get involved in doing that. But the cure is there, we just need to kind of administer it.
0: Well, I think now that we know a bit more about our three guests' perspectives, it'd be a good time to bring you in, Rosanna. So Rosanna Bicello is our resident expert here at Place Labs, And um, Rosanna, you work a lot with the placemaking industry itself. So what do you make of this and the notion of disaster and how it impacts place?
4: Well, I think that we often think of a disaster in terms of a, a catastrophic event, as, as Gemma raised, um, that, you know, disrupts the status quo and, and brings a crisis to a head. But the notion of everyday disasters, I think, is far more prevalent in, in our cities uh, and And it's systemic, and it often hits the the poorest, hardest. So if you think about urban design and urbanism as a systemic way of thinking, you know something that that really looks at the world on a uh, from from way up above um, and also works in generational cycles, then we can design and plan for our futures, right? We have the ability to do that it means that placemakers have a really big role to play in the way that they've also had a really big role in taking some terrible decisions and um, and actually led to everyday disasters which have impacted millions of people around the world. So I think it means that that placemakers need to to, to think really, really deep and hard about what they're doing. Because I think we're virtual building cities we're building asphalt, we're building concrete, we're building cars, we're building kind of slow released, you know, poison mills that, that that actually isolate us from the natural world and and ways of thinking that many, you know, non-Western, let's say, forms or or, or more rural, more kind of native forms of thinking have actually, um, can teach us. We're also building endemic social systems systems that are inequitable and endemic health problems in there. So, segregation into a city. So, every decision that an evidence makes has an impact for generations. And I think that we need to become better informed and, and more collaborative, actually, to Noel's point. We need to understand, you know, Beyond the, the the physical impact, what's the social impact, the cultural impact, the environmental impact, the economic impact? It means that we actually need to work, I think, with scenario planners uh, and thinking about how we could speculate on possible futures. It's kind of shocking the way that actually that that doesn't really happen really? in in I don't think so in urban design, especially beyond a technical perspective. You know. Mm. Um, and I think secondly, we need to open up our partnerships to, to rethink who who the the leaders are. You know, so climate scientists and citizen scientists should be working with urban designers and equity designers and economists and urban psychologists. All of these people have you know ways to help us sort of redress the system. Um, so it opens up the remit of who we consider as placemakers, um, which is why we've invited a whole host of people into this conversation today. Um, and I think I think the, the final point though is. Going back to the idea of story, um, uh, we were talking about Greta as an example earlier. She seems to have become like an individual figurehead um, for something that many people have been talking about for for many years. So, you know, maybe this is a question to direct out to you. I don't know if any one of you wants to take this, but um, do do we need individual figureheads as a way to to personalise and personify? Um, the idea of a disaster to get people behind it. Well, how do we bring on board? You know, a collect. How do we make this a collective endeavor?
3: Yeah, I can take that. Yeah. Yeah, I, mean, I think you said
0: Greta, so I have to talk
4: Yeah, yeah
3: sure, um, sure. I think that the um, it sort of makes me think of what uh, what was being said earlier um, about how, whether we need to experience disaster in order to to run from it. And actually, what I would try and encourage us all to do is is recognize the power of having something to run to. And I think that that's what's been absent for a long time. And actually, you know, in Extinction Rebellion's approach, it was initially very much like this is what's going on, this is terrifying. And to, to your point, like that, that kind of stops people in their tracks a bit. We, you know, fear freezes us, we need hope in there as well, we need uh, promise on the other side of the peril. Um, so I think that uh, collective vision making is, is what's really, really important here making, and that this is happening, right, there's a book written by Christina Figueres, it's just come out, and Tom Karnak who were behind the Paris Agreement, and looking at what what future are we going to choose for ourselves, and what does that look and feel like, mm-hmm. and there's excerpts in it in places like Fast Company, what does 2050 look like if we do all the things, all those cures that we know we have, have to do already, what does that start to look and feel like, and that's what we need for people, we need something for them to go and the hole that's missing in their lives at the moment, which is causing them to, you know, vote for, say,
0: dubious things. Yeah. Is, but is, is a figure like, like Greta, from a semiotic point of view and from a narrative point of view, is that really helpful or how? what what do you make of it, Gemma?
1: I think, I mean, I think of Greta as being, I, I kind of call her our little sister as opposed to our big brother, because she mm. sort of feels like she's kind of looking, mm. watching us and reflecting ourselves back. Um, And I think, you know, a figurehead like Greta is a sort of totemic image in our society, right? She's a symbol for for a community and for a way of thinking. Um, And we've always had these figureheads. We've always had the archetypes or the leaders or the symbols or the totems that we organize ourselves around. So um, yes, I think it is useful to have um, somebody like that. I think, as usual, people are much more complex and much more plural and much more messy than stories that we see in the media will allow for. Um, so that's where you get into the, the complications. You know, somebody becomes turned off by by the symbol, by Greta, and then they're turned off by the whole thing.
0: Patti, you mentioned hope, and um, but isn't there also a sense of more of, of courage and of that's social great. dissent, mm-hmm. of, uh, you know, of that it's not just the leader but it's actually the first few followers that then create the movement and how do we get that? Noel do you um, I, I'm reminded of that project that you had on the Park Society about the lawn culture in California and when someone decides to rip up their lawn because mm. they find it too environmentally harmful then they're, they're looked down upon and they are perceived as social dissenters but do we need more people like that?
2: Absolutely, yeah. So I, I think it's interesting about Greta because you know, she's obviously amazing, um, she's doing really really great work but I think having one totemic individual, it's a bit like Jeremy Corbyn I suppose, you know, great ideas, but one person isn't going to unite everybody. I think we need, you know, Greta for every country, Greta for every generation, Greta for every village, every city, I think we all need to be Greta's, um, and you know, I don't think one person's going to do it. Um, it comes from community, it doesn't come from an individual, people don't like being told what to do. Um, I think You know, going back to the question of do we need to experience disaster to actually respond and become familiar with it, it, you know, it's a bit like uh, perception bias. You know, you respond to disasters, events you've got experience of. Climate change is a very, very strange disaster because it's, you know, people perceive it as on the horizon. Um, Floods happen, you know, hurricanes happen, but they happen in very kind of niche enclaves, they, they don't happen to everybody, it's difficult for everybody to, to, to associate that with climate change, you know, I, I think we need lots of Greta's, um, lots of Greta's shouting from the rooftops, mm-hmm. talking about how disa- the disaster is happening in each and every one of our lives in, in its own little way, I mean, in London here we have a huge kind of epidemic of kind of asthma cases and children mm-hmm. die on the way to school essentially because of you know urban pollution,
0: um, that is climate change, that is a disaster. But then you said um, people don't like to be told what to do, mm. so how do, we, how do we then create change if we can't sort of impose it from above, that would sort of lead to participation and placemakers if we try to bring it back to place now, um, how do we foster participation, how do we successfully get people involved, do people get involved in participatory city, what's your experience? Well, um, people do, um,
2: but usually they yeah. have to have a reason to. Um, for example, a friend of a friend might have suffered, you know, catastrophic asthma attack in the climate scenario, or another a friend of a friend that participates through a city might be suffering from you know, the lack of you know, state welfare, the lack of a safety net, um, You know, there needs to be some proximity, but again, I think that's it's a huge challenge we face with the climate crisis because it's so diffuse. It's still extremely difficult, even with empirics, to say, you know, the floods that we've been facing over the last few weeks, or the Australian bushfires are a result of climate change. I mean, there's lots of evidence to say it is, but there's also enough evidence out there and enough ambiguity and uncertainty for lots of individuals to say it's not. And even if there wasn't that ambiguity, it's far enough away that a lot of people block it out. But I think that's a challenge we need to face, because we can't wait for disasters
3: to strike before we we act. yeah. yeah, just just to, just to on that. To to your point, yes, we can't. Um, it will be too late. Mm-hmm. So if we're all feeling the real effects of this, it'll be too late for us to do anything. And um, but some, a, a really beautiful phrase that I unfortunately can't remember who said, he uh, said it. But uh, to think about this and how we talk to people and how we involve them in it, and um, is that talking about being better than the apocalypse is quite difficult for people to comprehend. And also, if you're talking about better than the apocalypse, it implies that there's some kind of sacrifice right now, just going to make their immediate life sort of slightly worse. To make it not way worse later in a way they can't imagine. So a much, much better way of framing it for people is better than Tuesday. And the reality is that so much of the stuff that we can do right now is about better than Tuesday. It's about improving people's lives immediately. And yeah. going on that journey with people is much, much easier yeah. because then they're very incentivized to do the kind of things that you're talking about because they can see them and they can immediately feel them and their lives are better. So. I think it's actually
4: one of the challenges that, um, that urbanism faces is because it works on such long term cycles it's to actually find ways to be much more immediate about it mm-hmm. and much more personal about it so um, it, I, th- I think if you know again if urban design teams can think of ways to start building in that kind of much more rapid change which let's face it's the way that the world moves it's just that that some built aspects of cities move much more slowly Um, then I think that they'll be much more responsive to these kind of changes
1: Uh, Yeah, I I mean I would agree with that I think that, you know, I was mentioning earlier the idea of adaptation, that is something that is fluid and needs to be continually happening so how can places allow for spaciousness for that? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think you know, to your point that these kinds of measures or changes that we need to make need to also be great and fulfilling and joyful, um, and I think there's an opportunity to kind of recode or reimagine what it means to be human in this yeah. context. You yeah. know, there's a there's an impetus to do that.
3: There's a, there's a great um, I totally agree. There's a great effort right now, and, and Attenborough is going to be talking about this a lot this year around rewilding. And the power mm-hmm. of rewilding. And rewilding is uh, is an important thing because it draws down carbon from the atmosphere right massively in fact it's 40 times more powerful than if you plant monoculture trees which is typically what people are doing when they're saying they're offsetting and everything we do needs to both draw down and stop emitting it's like turning the tap off or pulling out the plug in the bath, right and but a great a great way that cities and and urban spaces can respond to this is doing that really quickly really immediately and there's this beautiful story i heard recently of a young uh, group of kids who are dealing drugs, they were dealing uh, marijuana and you know, little bags to people, and this guy has set up a thing where he helps them grow vegetables instead and sell those, because he turns up and he says how much are you selling that bag of, you know, weed for? It's like, oh 15 quid. He's like, well you can sell this bag of salad that you've grown over there for 20 quid. So why don't you do that instead? Mm. And these kids are now doing this. They're selling, you know, organic salad to restaurants in London, and making exist. more than when they were
4: drug dealers. <laughs> exactly. exactly, it's making it's making
1: a positive benefit for people. Yeah, yeah. But, but what happens if you rewild areas of city, right? As well, that yeah, becomes that's really that's interesting. Exactly. So it allows for that flexibility and that expansion and that randomness yes. that yeah. we're trying to repress.
2: I think it's also interesting in talking about the value that adds is as you were speaking about earlier, kind of economics is a thing that we have to kind of deal with and it's about convincing people who actually own that land especially in cities that the value that they're producing from that is equal if not more than what they're mm-hmm. doing with that land now mm-hmm. I think that's I mean it's the whole question around green capitalism it's about quantifying the benefits of taking care of the environment yeah. um, mm-hmm. which for a lot of people isn't as immediate as just profit
3: from rent for example yeah um, yeah. A really interesting thing on that is that a lot of the flat roofs in the in the city tend to be owned by councils, and they are n- Nothing happens on them at the moment, so they could be a very interesting space to start right. developing, like you know, allotment style growing things, etc. Right. So yeah. Did you want to jump in there?
4: Um, yeah, I think I think I think actually the what you've highlighted is that there are cities are quite wasteful, you know what I mean? There are lots of spaces that are underused, and actually sometimes the cities that are um, suffering the most are those where you have the most vacant land, um, that could almost flip the script and be places where you highlight how actually the spaciousness, the kind of bagginess, if that makes sense, could be a way to turn those cities into figureheads because that goes back to Norway's point about community and collective you know, collectiveness. Where can we look around the world and see this happening? How could we look at Detroit or Barking and Dagenham you know, which are places that had suffered from actually a lot of blight because because things had moved out, it le- left a lot of space. How could they become, you know, those kind of underdog cities in some ways the places that we could look to to learn from instead?
0: Well, thank you very much for this fascinating discussion. I'm sure we could carry on for a while, um, but we're running out of time. And before we go, what I'd like to do to wrap this up and to help me and those of our listeners who have been inspired um, is to ask you, what are your personal takeaways from this? And what can each of us individually do to contribute positive change? You know, what's, do you have a personal wish list of actions on a personal and professional level? Uh, I mean, yeah,
3: I, um, I mean, the a uh, personal level, it's about making a plan. Um, it's about making a plan to do the kind of things that, as an individual, we can do to contribute all the recycling work and stuff. But it's vital that we acknowledge that at the same time, we're trying to put pressure on the systems that need to change. We're trying to think about how we can redesign the economy that we're a part of. And then beyond that, it's, I think it's basically about trying to see the carrot of new economic ways of doing things and the sort of innovation potential of all of that. And the opportunities for new types of growth, etc., rather than focusing so much on the on the stick of sustainability, which can often feel like a big sort of heavy obligation, a finger behind on. So, if we can think more optimistically, have the courage to be optimistic, and chase after the solutions that are there, then we're going to be in a much better place very quickly. Okay. No. Sure. My
2: thinking is that practical action comes from a new way of thinking, um, and that's to, as i come said earlier, avoid bilateral, linear ways of thinking about our relationship with the environment. It's not sort of, I do this, and this happens to the environment, in inverted commas. It's the environment, space, place, whatever you want to call it, is a network of things of which we are part of. Um, Equally as important as everything else in that network, Um, stand in any space, place, and just consider how you and everything you see are one, for want of a better phrase, it sounds very kind of hippy dippy, but it's very true. Um, I think if we really take that idea seriously, then our attitude towards the, the space we live in would be far more kind of respectable, and a lot of the issues we're, we're facing now kind of wouldn't be issues at all. Gemma?
1: Um, to sound like a speculative designer, I would say that I'd like to see cities and places being conceived of as kind of living prototypes, if you like, prototypes of different futures and to create space within those to test and envision and embody what some of these kind of really enjoyable and effective changes might really feel like because I think there's a distance at the moment between um, where we are now and these kind of ambiguous solutions that are in the hands of tech gods or whoever it might be. And I think, you know, we already have a lot of the answers. There's a lot of kind of looking back and looking in um, to figure out what those things might be. Um, And uh, yeah, I think we need space to explore them and to feel them.
0: Great. Maybe there's still some space for optimism and maybe we can look at disaster also as opportunity. Um, Well, thank you very much, Gemma Jones, Noel Mocker, Patrick Lohmann, and Rosanna Vigiello, our experts. Uh, Thank you very much indeed. (laughs) And also warm thanks to JTP for allowing us to record in their lovely new premises here in Wapping. Um, that's all for this episode of Place Labs podcast. To find out more about Place Labs and about our guests today, you can go to placelabs.co.uk or find us at placelabs on Instagram. Do get in touch if you'd like to attend our quarterly events and get involved in the discussion. Thank you very much for listening.